now we enter in this section of the prophets. The kings and the prophets are happening at the same time. The book of Kings takes place from the time of Solomon, which is in the mid-900s, all the way through 586 B.C. So to kind of give you an idea, Solomon came into power around the 980s, 980s B.C. It was in 966 B.C. that he built the temple. It was in 930 B.C. that the kingdom split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Then there was a whole series of kings in the north and the south all the way through to 722 when the Assyrians came and took them into exile. And then 586 when the Babylonians came and took Judah into exile. It is during the 700s and 600s that the prophets are also simultaneously preaching to them. And so there was a group of prophets called the Pre-Assyrian prophets that preached to both Israel and Judah, but mostly Israel, calling them to repent. And then they did not listen. Israel did not repent. And so they went into exile in 722. And there was a group of prophets called the Pre-Babylonian prophets that ministered to Judah, calling them to repentance, and they did not. And so they went into exile in 586. So as you read through the prophets, there's the pre-exilic prophets, and under them are the pre-Assyrians and then the pre-Babylonians. So the pre-Assyrian prophets is Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. And then the pre-Babylonian prophets are Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They rebuked Israel. The first major sin that they rebuked Israel for was their idolatry. The second sin that they rebuked Israel for was injustice two sins that God is condemning them for is idolatry and corruption of justice. And the corruption of justice that God specifically targets is basically oppressing the disadvantaged, oppressing the poor, the orphans, and the widows, which was that culture's definition of the, the, the people who had no power, it was more easily to violate their rights or their sense of living. They're oppressing of the disadvantaged. They're oppressing of the poor in order to make money and gain more power. So basically abusive power and using the poor to their advantage in order to make their lives better and the poor worse. And now, of course, the prophets don't just mean poor financially. They mean poor financially as well as in spirit and um, advantages and all kinds of stuff. Basically, the people who have no power and cannot defend themselves. You can be wealthy and still be powerless. You can be comfortable financially and still be powerless in the way that a government cheats you and wrongs you. If they did not turn from their idolatry and their corruption of justice, then he warned of the coming exile. Now, remember, this idolatry is the, the, the antithesis to love the Lord your God with all of your mind, life, and everything. And then the corruption of justice is the antithesis to loving your neighbor as yourself. So these two things basically violate all the Ten Commandments, loving God and loving others. And so if they did not repent of this, they would go into exile. But it became clear after all the years that humans were incapable of being selfless images of God and of renewing and expanding the Garden of Eden so that it would cover all the earth and bring all the nations into the Garden. So basically what God is showing here is that remember that the beginning of the nation of Israel 
began with Moses leading them to the promised land, calling them to remember who God was and to live faithfully, and that he has laid before them the choice of life and death, obedience to the law, which gives you life and blessings, and disobedience to the law that brings death. And he basically said you will never be able to change. Your hearts are hard. They need to be circumcised. And until they are circumcised, you will never be able to change. And you will go into exile. So all Joshua judges and Samuel Kings is chronicling is the downfall of Israel and Judah into the inevitable conclusion that Moses already laid out for them. It is one giant argument on all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is clear at this point that Moses' argument that people will not change without a circumcision of the heart is true. It becomes clear that humans are incapable of being selfless images of God, of renewing and expanding the Garden of Eden so that we cover the entire earth so that all nations be included. They can't even be what God has called them to do, let alone to encourage and call and be an example to other nations to come in. And this is the failure of humans. They are incapable of being what Adam and Eve were called to do. Though what the prophets are going to do is they're, they're condemning Israel and Judah for their inability to do what Moses said they will not be able to do. But now, hopefully after all these years of failing miserably, they can now make the argument why we need a Messiah so badly. You see, if you don't actually believe that there's something wrong with you and that you're flawed and you can't save yourself, you are going to be unwilling to hear the message of the need of a Savior. You're not going to call for help. I mean, you've kind of had this either with your own kids or students or adult friends where they refuse to ask for help because they're just so convinced that they can do it if they just keep trying. And it's not until they finally just fail miserably over and over again that they're like, swallow their pride, although it's harder for adults to swallow their pride than little kids, and they they finally ask for help. And we talked about this is the whole point of the law. The point of the law was to show us what righteousness was, and then when we are unable to actually live out the law to its fullest desires and requirements, then we realize that we're sinners and we can't do it on our own. Though an individual human can come to that conclusion pretty quickly, an entire human race needs way longer than that. Israel goes through almost every form of government there is. They have a kind of a democracy. They have a dictatorship. They have a monarchy. They have a form of an oligarchy. And they have all different kinds of economic systems over the 1,000 years that they've been around. And none of those succeed. None of those succeed. And so it becomes clear that all humans truly have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, that may not be clear to every single human in Israel, but it becomes clear in a historical record for us future generations to read and see if we will only acknowledge that humans today are no different than back then. It was through these prophets that Yahweh would then begin to reveal in greater detail who this prophesied messianic king would to be and how we would be bring and how he would bring the new Jerusalem this prophesied messiah that we read in Genesis 49 with the king who would tie his donkey to the vine, a kingdom full of life and joy, the king that was prophesied in Numbers 24, the king that would rule over the nations with an iron scepter and basically bring all into evil, a star that would rise up out of Jacob, 
and the prophet, the great prophet that would be greater than Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 through 19. The prophets are now going to springboard off of that. In Psalm 110, that's where God said, I will make you my king and make your enemies your footstool, and I will make you a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You will be king and priest simultaneously. These passages are going to become the springboard for the prophets to begin to more fully develop who this Messiah is and what he is going to do. And specifically, not only his coming, but the establishment of a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem that would actually be the Garden of Eden. Not the Garden of Eden that God would ask Israel to create, but the Garden of Eden that the Messiah would actually truly create. And this is the message of the prophets. The Hebrew word for Messiah means anointed one. And we talked about this. The priests were called the Messiahs. They were anointed by God, the chosen one, to serve him. The kings were called Messiahs. And the prophets were called Messiahs. But now what the prophets begin to look forward to is the Messiah, a Messiah of all Messiahs. And when they talk about him, first and foremost, he is king. This is the first prophecies of the Messiah. King who brings joy. King who conquers enemies. King who is also a priest. And this is what they're going to develop, is the king. And God would put his spirit upon this king so that he would do what Israel could never do and what Adam and Eve were intended to do. Yahweh promised that one day he would return Israel to the promised land, which will be, would be flowing with all the abundance of grain, wine, and olive oil. Multiple times in Joel chapter 2 and Jeremiah 31 and so on, God promised there will come a day when I will bring you back to the promised land and I will make it abundant, flowing with grain, wine, and olive oil. These three things he repeats more often than anything else. Grain is symbolic of just your necessity of life, the the essentials, the staple of what it means to be alive. And wine was symbolic of the abundance of life, the joy of life, the enjoying life. And olive oil is symbolic of spiritual life, the blessings that you have from being connected to God. And so this is what he was going to bring in abundance into this new land, this new Jerusalem. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. However, in the future, I will lure her, Israel. I will lead her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Now you say, why would God lead her back in the wilderness? Remember, wilderness is where Israel first met God and begin to experience God, and saw God do all these wonders, and God gave the law to them, and God gave the tabernacle to them, and God gave the sacrificial system to them, and God made them his chosen people. It was their adoption. It was their marriage ceremony at Mount Sinai. It is the honeymoon. Now, granted, they were a horrible wife in the wilderness in their honeymoon, but it was still the place where they first encountered God, and where he first was loving to them, and they first began to see who he was. And so it's not that I'm going to bring you back to the wilderness, because that's contrary to a Garden of Eden flowing with blessings. It's that I'm going to bring you back to our first encounter, the first time you begin to experience me, and that you begin to know who I was. From there I will give back her vineyards. This is where he's going to say it's not going to be a wilderness forever. 
I will give you back your vineyards to her and turn the valley of trouble into an opportunity for hope. There she will sing as she did when she was young and when she came from the land of Egypt. At that time, declares Yahweh, you will call me husband. You will never call me my master, for I will remove the names of Baal idols from your lips so you will never again utter their names. Now what makes this so unique is not only is he calling them back to a land flowing with wine, but he's going to have a more intimate relationship with them than they ever had before. Before, he wanted an intimate relationship with them, but he can only be so intimate and so close to them because of their sin. He can only come to them in the pillar of the fire, the Shekinah glory of Yahweh, dwelling in the Holy of Holies at a distance from them, still closer than any pagan god was willing to come to humans, but still way too far than what God intended in the garden. But when he circumcises our hearts, He's going to do something that allows him to come closer to us and be more intimate to us. And so no longer will we call him our master, though we still will, but we'll be able to call him our husband. We'll have a more intimate relationship with him than we ever had before. Ezekiel chapter 11. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. When I regather you from the people and assemble you from the hands, from the lands where you have from the lands where you have been dispersed, I will give you back the country of Israel. When they return to it, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all of its abominations. I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove the hearts of stone from their bodies, and I will give them tender hearts, so they may follow my statutes and observe my regulations and carry them out. So here's where he specifically talks about the spirit indwelling us. He's not just promising a spirit to enter into each one of us. He's promising that the same spirit would enter into all of us and that we would be given the same heart. If all of our hearts are being circumcised to know the will and the law of God, then God's will and law is always the same from person to person to person. And so that will be carved into all of us. And that same spirit will indwell all of us and we will be connected. And there are times Uh, My wife has talked about this. I've experienced this where I have encountered people and just by looking in their eyes and talking to them for a while, I'm like, I bet you they're a Christian. I remember experiencing one time where I went to get rid of my tuxedo for my marriage and I was like, this guy is so Christian. Like within seconds I knew, but I was too afraid to ask and I was too distracted and too, too busy that day. And then I got married, and a couple months later, I went to this Bible study, and he, like, sat down right next to me at the Bible study, and he recognized me, and he said he felt the same thing, okay? And, and from that point on, I've never been afraid to ask. I just ask now, and, and usually they're like, yes, I am. There's just something that you see in their spirit, and it's there because we share something in common. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to happen with every single Christian you meet, or if you don't sense that, they're not really a Christian, but there's just those moments where you're just in tune to God and they're in tune to God and you just connect. And so this is what he's promising, the same spirit of God. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. But those whose hearts are devoted to testable things and abomination, I hereby repay them for what they have done, says the sovereign Yahweh. So he says, then they will be my people, not because they're Jewish, not because they're circumcised in their bodies, But when the Spirit indwells them and their hearts are circumcised, then they will be my people. And this is why Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul comes along later and says 
that membership into the covenant of God is no longer physical bodily circumcision. It's circumcision of the heart. Remember, God made it very clear, the Abrahamic covenant, the only way you can be a part of it is through circumcision. And he made it clear that, no, you couldn't obey the Mosaic law, but everybody had to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And you didn't have to be Jewish to be part of the Abrahamic covenant, but you had to be part of the Abrahamic covenant to live in the land and to reap the blessings of the land. And that was marked by circumcision. But circumcision physically did not save you. Faith did. Circumcision was just the mark of your faith. Now what Paul and Jesus and John are saying is that that physical circumcision was a foreshadowing of an internal heart circumcision. See, you can get physically circumcised and not have faith. But you cannot be heart circumcised and not have faith. Your faith has always been entrance into the Abrahamic covenant of salvation. And circumcision is always the mark of your faith. The difference is it's now an internal marking rather than an external marking. But circumcision is still the sign of the covenant. In that day, Yahweh would raise up a righteous Davidic king to establish and rule over the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says, For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. He shoulders responsibility and is called Wonderful Advisor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast, and he will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh's heaven of armies will accomplish this. Now, once this Messiah came and brought them into the the promised land and restored the promised land with all of its blessings, This new Jerusalem will also be Yahweh's holy cosmic mountain, where he will dwell with his covenant people. So he promised that this he wouldn't have a cosmic mountain that the people would be afraid to come up to or be unable to approach, that he would bring a cosmic mountain that he ruled from on his throne, and all peoples from all nations would come to this cosmic mountain and dwell with him. This is the promise. Micah 4, 1 through 7 says, And in future days, Yahweh's temple mount will be the most important mountain of all. It will be more prominent than other hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will come, saying, Come on, let us go up to Yahweh's mountain, to the temple of Jacob's God, so he can teach us his ways, and we can live by his laws. For instructions will proceed from Zion, Yahweh's message from Jerusalem. He will arbitrate between many peoples and settle disputes between many distant nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not use weapons against other nations, and they will no longer train for war. Each will sit under his own grapevine or his own fig tree without any fear. Yahweh of the heavens' armies has decreed it. Though all nations follow their respective gods, we will follow Yahweh our God forever. And that day, says Yahweh, I will gather the lame and assemble the outcasts whom I injured. I will transform the lame into the nucleus of a new nation and those far off into a mighty nation. Yahweh will reign over them on Mount Zion from that day forward and forevermore. The new Jerusalem 
would not just be a Jerusalem that Israel was supposed to turn in the Garden of Eden. The new Jerusalem would be the Garden of Eden. It would be the cosmic mountain, the Garden of Eden that God originally created. Yahweh's glory will then return to the new Jerusalem, making the whole city the temple of Yahweh. If the new Jerusalem is the cosmic mountain of God, then it is the temple of God, so to speak, or the tabernacle of God. It will be like the Garden of Eden, which will cover the entire world, and there will be no evil in the land. This wouldn't just be localized in a specific city called Jerusalem. But it's at this point in the prophets when it will be like a garden of Eden which will cover the entire world and there will be no evil in the land. The point is it will no longer be just a localized city anymore. A specific city like the old Jerusalem. It will be a new Jerusalem that will cover the entire planet. And that's key too. Because when we're looking at these prophecies of one day Jerusalem will become the capital of Israel again and God will build the temple there again, that will be a sign of the second coming of Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. That's too small. That's too localized. God is not promising that city over there with a building temple. He's promising a city that will cover the entire world. It's a metaphorical city. If a city is a gathering of people together, then it's the whole world will be gathered together. But it's not the world's dream. The world dreams of utopia where humans get together and they fix themselves and they create a place where everybody gets along and everything is great. That is impossible. World history has shown we can't create utopias. What God is creating is a garden, a restoration back to the garden. And that this is a place where we are connected to Yahweh. And we're so deeply and intimately connected to Yahweh that he then changes us and circumcises our hearts. And he creates the Garden of Eden on earth. And this is what brings a paradise. Not our works of utopia, but his work of building a garden. And so this isn't a localized event. This is global. People from all nations will come streaming to his holy city slash mountain. Throughout the prophets, they constantly talk about that one day God will destroy all the nations, which is symbolic of the destruction of evil. But he will invite all the nations, and all the nations will stream into this new Jerusalem, which is symbolic of all nations, Jews and Gentiles being saved. And it's no longer just a ethnic Jewish people who are the chosen people of God, but multi-ethnical, multi-gender, multi-age, multi-tribal, multi-national. So how can he destroy and bring all the nations in? Well, it's just the idea that the nations as their core, corporately, government-wise, they will refuse to repent and be a part of this. Not that nobody in the government, nobody in power will repent and come, but as a whole, the institution, the Tower of Babylon-like idea mentality, very few, that will not be redeemed. It can't be redeemed. The ideas completely go contrary to God. And there will always be people who refuse to relinquish their power. And they will be destroyed by this new Messiah. But there will be many individual people who will seek to defect from this corrupt tower of Babylon. And they will choose to stream into the new Jerusalem. And so in this way, God can speak of the nations being destroyed and the nations streaming in. 
because one is the nations in a corporate government-like ideology, the way the world thinks, and the other one is the individual people of the nations who will defect from that. And so this is what God promises. Yahweh will make this possible through a new covenant that he will establish with his covenant people. This covenant will remove and forgive their sins. Yahweh will make them a faithful people because he will pour his spirit into their hearts and write his law on their hearts and minds so that they will all know his will. Jeremiah 31, 31. Indeed, a time is coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt. This is where he specifically says a new covenant is coming. Now, the author of Hebrews quotes this passage and says, when Jeremiah calls his covenant new and says that it's not like the Mosaic covenant, he is saying that the new will replace the old covenant. That the Mosaic covenant is done in a way with because this new covenant will fulfill the Mosaic covenant and do what it could not do. Basically give us the ability to actually want to and be able to obey the law. For they violated that covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says Yahweh. So he says they were never able to fulfill that law. They were never, never able to do what it says like Moses said they wouldn't be able to. I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel. After I plant them back in the land, says Yahweh, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds, circumcision of the heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. For all of them will know me from the least important to the most important will know me, says Yahweh. For I will forgive their sins and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. What this is not saying is that you will no longer need anybody to teach you about the Bible or you'll no longer need to help. You will just automatically know everything about God and the Bible all by yourself. I am an island unto myself as I study the Bible and talk and commune with God. That is not what it means at all. God has always worked through the community more than the individual and understanding who he is. What it means is remember, we talked about this, the prophets were the only humans who were ever on the divine council of Yahweh which means the only people who could ever know the will of Yahweh were the prophets. And if the prophets are the only ones who know the will of Yahweh, then they're the only people who can teach everybody what God's will is. And so if he taught it wrong and got it wrong, then we would get it wrong. And we wouldn't know any better because there's nobody else to go to to fact check him, so to speak. And so that consequences of him getting it wrong would have devastating consequences for us and we would never even know as a people. And so only the prophet knew the will of God because only the prophet was living in a higher holiness and gifted enough to encounter the divine counsel of Yahweh and bring it back, which means humans were completely dependent on these handfuls of prophets in their lives, which means the only way you would know what God specifically, uniquely wanted you to do for your life as an individual or as a nation is if a prophet told you. But one day, God is going to bring this new covenant that's going to pour the Spirit into us and write the law in our hearts, which means we're going to have the divine counsel of Yahweh put into us. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son are going to actually indwell us. Therefore, we will all know the will of Yahweh, and we will all know what to do. And now when you come to me and say, Thus saith Yahweh, I can say, Well, I can talk to Yahweh too. 
and we can all gather together as believers. Now, we still need the community because we still have a sin nature. And we can still sometimes think that God is telling us something, but it's maybe our wishful thinking. Or maybe God is speaking to us, but we're too distracted to actually hear him. And we need somebody else to tell us. Or we are seeking him out, but he's choosing to work in the community rather than the individual. Or maybe he tells us something, but we don't fully know what he means. And we need to go to the word and the other believers who have the Holy Spirit. All different kinds of scenarios that we still need each other to understand the will of Yahweh, but no longer am I completely and utterly dependent upon you and at your mercy as a prophet and completely oblivious to whether you're telling me the truth or not until you get judged. Now we can all pray to God together as a community. And if God is truly speaking, then he will be saying the same thing to all members of the community. What he does is he promises then he'll change us, that he is going to circumcise our hearts. Jeremiah makes this connection to Moses, says, this Messiah will usher in the day that our hearts will finally be circumcised and redeemed. How will this happen? He will do it by pouring his spirit upon us. It will fill everyone, young and old, in every ethnicity, man and woman regardless of economic status and class. And then this Holy Spirit will then begin to write the law on our hearts. It will not be written on stone tablets external to us with no power to give us the ability or the desire to actually obey God. But it will be carved into our very hearts and it will give us the ability and the desire to actually obey God. This is the circumcision of the hearts. As the law is carved into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, this is the circumcision of the heart that will change us. And it will change the way that we think because the heart and the mind were synonymous in the ancient way of thinking so that we will all know his will. We will all know what God wants and we will be able to and want to do God's will. And this is what's going to change us in that day. And only then, we call this the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And it's a gradual process. The prophets might have thought, that this would be an instantaneous event that would completely change us. We now know that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was an instantaneous event that leads to the process of the circumcision of the heart. Just like conception is an instantaneous event that leads to the process of pregnancy, which leads to the instantaneous event of birth that leads to the process of child rearing. God typically starts with an event that leads to a process. And that's usually what miracles are. Miracles are not events in themselves. They're events that lead to processes. For I will forgive their sins and no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. I will forgive their sins and I will do away with your sins that I will no longer be able to hold them against you. I will not hold them against you. You will not face the judgment of death. Even if you obeyed a lot of the law, you couldn't obey the law perfectly. And so eventually the law would kill you. But what God is saying is, if I forgive your sins and I will not call to mind your wrong anymore, it doesn't mean that he's going to lobotomize himself and forget everything you've ever done. It means that he will no longer judge you and condemn you for those sins because you are no longer under the law. You've been freed from the penalty of the law that brings death because he is going to forgive you. This passage doesn't tell you how he's going to forgive you. We know it's the cross. But Isaiah 53 is the one that points a little bit more deeply to this idea of a suffering servant who will atone for our sins in that way. 
Yet no human is righteous enough, according to the law, to be able to dwell in this new Jerusalem. Therefore, this coming Messianic king would have to first function as humanity's high priest and provide atonement for their sins. But as high priest, he would also offer himself as a sacrificial lamb to atone for humanity's sins. Once he had freed humanity from sin and the penalty of the law, then he could rule as king and usher us into the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 53, 2-8 says, He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of the parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we would want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But Yahweh had caused sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living. Because of the rebellion of his own people, he was wounded. So Isaiah 53 makes it clear that this Messiah is going to act as a priest who's going to atone for our sins. But not just that, he's going to act as the sacrificial lamb himself who's going to be the atonement for our sins. There are other passages in Isaiah, the suffering servant, but not as clear as this one that points to the fact that he is the sacrificial lamb in addition to being the priest. This points to the fact that he is going to be the king priest that will come to become our actual atonement for sins. And so this is what God is promising. The major categories that you would want to think of this is that a Messiah that would actually be able to do what Adam and Eve were intended to do would come and create a new Garden of Eden all over the world that would eliminate all evil and bring the blessings of God, which would then also include all the nations, which then these people in this new Jerusalem would have their hearts circumcised through the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the four major categories of how to look at what God is going to do. So this is what the prophets prophesied. We already know this in a lot of ways. But what we know about this new kingdom of God that will come one day, that we've experienced a little bit of it through the death and resurrection of Christ, and that we've experienced a little bit through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, We're going to still yet to experience it one day when Christ comes back a second time and brings the actual physical new Jerusalem where all the nations will come in and there will be no more evil. 